Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So I was recently on a plane, and I did not have a a great experience. I was on a a two-and-a-half-hour flight, and I fell asleep within the first half hour. It was kind of an early morning flight and uh, was thankful to get some sleep. Uh, I was awoken by the unreasonably loud pilot's announcement. I don't know why it needs to be quite so loud. uh, That we were beginning a lengthy descent to our location, and I realized as I was waking up from that that I really needed to use the bathroom but I was in the window seat, my neighbors were sleeping next to me, and the fasten seatbelt sign was already on. So I figured, you know, I'm an adult here, I can probably handle this, and so I, I said, I'm, I'm gonna, we'll make it work. And the descent took about 45 minutes because of some uh, weather or something, and by the time we landed, I was in severe pain. Some of you know that feeling. I couldn't sit still because I thought that I was gonna burst, and then the deplaning took an irrationally long time. And, and I just remember as the deplaning was going so slow and I'm fidgeting in my seat, I, I remember just pleading with God, God, get me off of this plane. And then when you get me off, make sure that the closest bathroom is not under construction, Lord, because there's going to be a problem otherwise. Um, I did make it. You'll be happy to know. Uh, but it was kind of a traumatic experience. And I just remember this this pleading prayer, this burning desire, get off the plane, just get me off this plane. It was not the first time that um, I had very strong emotions upon deplaning. I, I remember just not being able to, to stand still being in the plane the time when we were introducing our daughter to their brothers for the first time. Or the time that I knew that I was going to have a phone call, voice message when I got off to say that my grandpa had passed away. Or the time where I didn't want it to land. One time I was like, can we circle around one more time because this movie's really good and I don't want to have to pay money to rent it. Or the time when I knew that I needed to catch a connecting flight or I was going to be stranded overnight in Omaha. The point here is, how many of us view our lives, this life that we live, sort of like a flight that we know is eventually going to end and we have to get off the plane? And the question is, what is our attitude going to be when we have to (laughs) deplane? When we think of life after death, are we joyful? Are we anxious? Are we full of dread? Or are we hopeful? In our series on the art of being human, we focused on two primary things, work and rest. And last week, Pastor Simon talked about the church as This place that fuels our work and our rest, this rhythm of work and rest, an uncommonly unified place that draws us in and then sends us out into mission. He preached from John 17, where Jesus is with his disciples and he's praying for his disciples and he's praying for the unity of their disciples and the work that they have to do. And then at the end of the passage, in verse 24, Jesus prays something which is just a perfect, a perfect transition to what we're talking about today. He says, Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. And this leads us to our last two weeks of our sermon series on the art of being human, where we're going to close on our focus of heaven, the hope of heaven. 
Jesus moves seamlessly from the unity of the church, the structure that God created and, and Jesus instituted for our flourishing as humans to what comes next. May they be with me where I am. See my glory, which you've given to me since the very beginning. So we in this sermon series have started in the beginning, Genesis 1, and we're moving towards the end, Revelation 22, in our overview of what the Bible says about being human. And here's our last topic, one that was present at the very beginning, the topic of what we're looking forward to. What are you looking forward to? We, we have to get off the plane. We have to deplane at some point. So how are our hearts as we consider deplaning and what are we looking forward to? In the Christian faith, this profound hope has a name. It's called eternity. And our understanding of eternity is part of what makes us human. So as we begin, I want to warn you of something that might be that, that something might be a little jarring for you today, and that is this: most of our concepts of eternity, of what happens after this life, are actually profoundly unbiblical. Most of our understanding of the afterlife comes from movies and TV shows, overly simplified Christian teachings or folkloric depictions that are really products of our modern Western culture. Just Google image search, what does heaven look like? And you'll see what I'm talking about. If I could encapsulate the dominant belief in our culture today around uh, what happens after this life, it goes something like this. If you're a good person and you embrace basically the right beliefs, you get to go to heaven. An eternal pleasure factory, ethereal and timeless, where all of your deepest questions are answered, you get to spend endless time with your loved ones and be on eternal vacation in a body that is totally fit. <laughs> if you're not a good person, you don't hold the correct beliefs, then you go into hell or the underworld, and it's pain and it's torture and it's everything that heaven is not. Therefore, the point of this human life is to make sure that we meet the minimum entrance requirements so that we can leave this earthly life bound for the good place rather than the other place. That's the dominant belief in our culture today. But I hope that this raises suspicion in your mind. Because if this is true, then why have we spent so many weeks talking about work and rest? What do they matter? What do those things really matter when eventually we're just going to leave everything behind, right? It's all going to burn. John Mark Comer, in his book Garden City, calls this dominant view of theology a theology of evacuation. The goal of this life is to get out of here, get off the plane, go somewhere else, to just evacuate. But that is not the biblical hope. And it's not really compelling either, right? So here's what I want to impress upon you over the next two Sundays. Our views of eternity are largely unbiblical and inadequate, and it's good for us to go back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture actually say? It's important for us to get this right or, or get closer to getting this right because the way that we view the future and talk about the future is wildly important. It's wildly important. It affects every part of our lives, oftentimes without us even knowing it. There's an entire branch of theology, by the way, that is devoted to this. It's called eschatology. It's based on the Greek word, word eschaton, which is translated as the end or end end of things. So eschatology is the study of the end, study of end times. And I want to ask you today to join me in becoming serious students of eschatology, if not for another 15, 20 minutes. Not so that you uh, make sure you have the right belief or to ensure that you end up in the right place or, or certainly not to frighten you in any way, but because this is part of being fully human 
And it matters to us today, right here, right now. So to help uh, in these two weeks, I'm going to ask three questions about heaven. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Three questions this week, three questions next week. So first, who gets into heaven? Pretty big question. The question of who is often where we start our, our questions about eternity. It's probably the impetus for why we begin asking questions in the first place. The problem is that the Bible doesn't say very much about who gets into heaven. The Bible's pretty clear that heaven is a real place and that hell's a real place and that people will go to one or the other. But the threshold between heaven and hell is not abundantly clear in Scripture. I mean, there are certain things that we can, we can understand, but Jesus talks very little about it. He spends exponentially more time talking about how to live here on earth than how to get to heaven and who gets there. And we can deduce that belief in Jesus' gospel and trust in him as Lord is, is, is somewhat of a requirement. It's a requirement in some way. But again, it's hard to pin down precisely what that means. <laughs> and I'm sure many of you are thinking about loved ones that have passed away and hope that they are indeed in heaven with Jesus and and, and wondering, you know, is the, is the vision that I have of them right now uh, going to get destroyed today? Uh, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable today. You shouldn't be, because here's the grace behind all of this. I'm not the judge of who spends eternity where, and neither are you. And thank God for that, right? John Ortberg talks about our tendency to figure out who is in and who is out. And he talks about it by this idea of setting minimum entrance requirements. He relays an analogy of uh, frequent flyer programs, as long as we're talking about planes today. It's not uncommon or inappropriate for those of you who travel a lot uh, or fly regularly to ask, Where, what are the minimum requirements for me to be able to retain my status? Some of you probably asked that before. Anybody would want to sit first class, right? Or, or get early seating or access to the really cool lounge that I've never been in before. Uh, or... Uh, or any of the other perks that come with it. And guess what? There are clearly defined minimum requirements for frequent flyer status. So the line is pretty set, and we know how to meet it. It might be appropriate to set minimum requirements for something like that, things that don't really demand anything of our lives, the way that we live. But can you imagine for a second someone entering a marriage and saying, honey, what are the minimum requirements for me to maintain my marriage status? That's not going to go well, is it? You see, we so often see our heavenly hope as something positional. Something positional. Here's where I stand in terms of eternity, and I need to make sure through the rest of my life that I can just maintain that status. The positional view might be helpful for us if we're looking for easy answers, but not biblical answers. Because Jesus didn't invite people into positional status he invited them into a trusting relationship with him. Eternity isn't positional, it's relational. We don't acquire it, we live into it. It should be unthinkable to us that Jesus would only require the minimum and not call us to anything further. Look, in, look at Jesus in the Gospels, he never speaks this way. He is very demanding of his disciples. Jesus called us to a trusting relationship with him, not so that we could acquire a status of eternity, but because life, trusting in him and living with him, is the richest and fullest way to live. So if we desire to, to trust in him and to, and to be with him in this mortal life here, 
it's going to be all the more sweet in the eternity to come because that's what we get to do. Trust in him and be with him. So who has the hope of heaven? Those who trust in Jesus, not meeting a minimum standard, but desiring to live with him and be in his presence each and every day. And it's Jesus who sets that standard of trust, not us. And thank goodness our God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So that's what we know of the who. Now, what is heaven? What is the heavenly hope? What is it? Well, the Bible helps us here pretty clearly. It mentions the kingdom of heaven many times. And the Gospels themselves speak of the kingdom of heaven with some frequency, especially the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is certainly what we hope in, what we, what we hope in after this life. And the Gospel uses two terms, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, quite a bit. And we're, we're tempted to read one as more eternity and one as more kind of what's happening here now. But actually, these two terms, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, are completely interchangeable in the New Testament. They mean the exact same thing. So, heaven is really best explained as what we call the kingdom of God. What is heaven? It's the kingdom of God. So we all have a kingdom, right? In a biblical sense, you do, because your kingdom is the range of your effective will. Essentially, it's the sphere where you're in control and the things go, and things go the way that you want them to go. I remember pretty clearly in childhood uh, having to share a room with my brother in a particularly contentious season of our brotherhood. And I remember him taking a roll of masking tape and, and making a line down the middle of the bedroom and said, this is my side, these are my Legos, this is my stuff, and what happens on my side is, does not concern you, this is my place, you may not be on my side. Unfortunately for my brother, he didn't think through this because the door in and out of the room was on his side, so that made it a little difficult uh, for him to keep me off of his side. But the point here is that we all create kingdoms, right? Even from a really young age, hang out with a two- or three-year-old, and how many times will they say mine, right? We have our kingdoms, places where we are kings and queens, our sphere of influence. Well, the kingdom of God is what Jesus claims as the heavenly hope. And it makes sense because the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. The kingdom of God is the place where God is recognized as king. Jesus is recognized as king. Where the masking tape is, is it, we take it up and we lay it aside, uh, of the masking tape of our own little kingdoms in deference to the lordship of God and life in his kingdom. So it certainly makes sense as we think about eternity and what it is that, that heaven would be a place where Jesus is Lord and his effective will is prevalent. And this is in contrast to the kingdom of earth, right? The kingdoms of this earth, which are defined by so many of the things that Colby prayed for this morning, right? Violence and polarization and death and abuse and oppression and waste and infidelity and cynicism and fear and isolation and depression. It's just so weighty. By contrast, the kingdom of God is defined by peace and blessing where everything works the way that God intends for it to work. As we go back to the beginning of this sermon series, in God's perfect eternal kingdom, everything is tov, right? It's good. It's pleasing. It's working the way it should. So that's what the kingdom is, and that brings me to the last question, which I think is the most fascinating question. When is heaven? When is heaven? And the obvious answer 
of when is heaven is it, it seems to be when we deplane, right, upon our death. Because we know that life on this earth is certainly not synonymous with the kingdom of God, right? This is, this is a heavy place where there's lots of, lots of issues. So how could it be now? But then remember, the Bible does not preach a theology of evacuation. In our text today, look at what Jesus says. Hear it again. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Jesus is saying here that the kingdom of God, which again, remember, is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, it's what heaven is, is among us here on earth, like now. In other words, we're not waiting for heaven. Heaven is now. But I mean, how can this really be, right? Too good to be true. We know that earth is a mess. We know that this life is a mess. Well, the early church actually recognized this repeatedly throughout the epistles. They recognized that there were still other kingdoms in this world that were at work, powerfully stubborn kingdoms. For them, it was Rome. For us, it's earthly kingdoms, yes, but also our own kingdoms, my kingdom, your kingdom, powerfully stubborn kingdoms, I would say. They preach and tell us that there will certainly be a time when all oppression and, and opposition to the kingdom of God is going to cease but these kingdoms of earth, they endure here and now because God allows them to because he chooses sacrificial love over coercion. So in the meantime, we ought to recognize that the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is here. Eschatologists actually have a term for this idea. They call it realized eschatology. Realized eschatology, meaning that the end, eternity, is not something that we passively wait for but it's realized in the here and in the now. In looser terms, realized eschatology can be contained in this phrase. We are in the already, not yet. Already, not yet. Meaning we realize heaven in the here and now, but we still wait for it to be fully realized. Do you see how radical this is and the potential it has to, to change our thinking? I mean, if the kingdom of heaven is already among us, then it, um, it eliminates our desire for a merely positional faith. It eliminates our preoccupation with who's in and who's out. It melts away the, the clouds and the harps and the floating cherubs. As N.T. Wright puts it, it's not about you getting into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. God brought heaven down to us through Jesus Christ the gift of eternity. And that eternity doesn't start when we die. It starts now. This frees us from inactivity and apathy and complacency. If you're someone here today who trusts in Jesus and you're willing to continue to place yourself under the lordship of his kingdom, then I just want you to know you have an incredible opportunity today. Because you can take a taste of God's eternal, heavenly kingdom and bring it down here, allowing Christ in you to break through into the messed up kingdoms of this world. So when you wrong somebody, 
and you choose to ask for forgiveness and you choose to make it right, the kingdom of heaven is breaking through. Every time you give of your time or your money or your gifts sacrificially, the kingdom of heaven is breaking through. Every time you obey God rather than your sinful nature, every time you lay aside your pride, every time you cast down the idols that you've created and you're worshiping, every time you choose community over isolation, the kingdom of heaven is breaking through. I can stand here today and and tell you with a very clear conscience that I've experienced eternity, at least glimpses of it. I've experienced it in the embrace of a of a widow in Lathrop Homes in Chicago. I've experienced it in in singing worship songs in a language that I didn't even know next to a bunch of people that I didn't know. I've experienced eternity in being witness to an orphan becoming a daughter. What about you? Talk about that with your loved ones today. Where have you experienced eternity, glimpses of heaven in the here and now, and what can you do to help other people experience heaven here and now. So my friends, next week we're going to talk about the where, why, and how of the heavenly hope. But I want you to tell me today, what resonates more with your heart? What resonates more with your heart? Living this life like you just need to get off the plane. Theology of evacuation. Or a realized eschatology where the object of our hope isn't somewhere far off in the future, but it's actually here and now with us, and it's motivating the ways in which we live each and every day. What resonates more with you? An understanding of heaven that places me positionally, sorts me into a category so long as I maintain some minimum requirements, or an understanding of heaven that wakes me up in the morning and motivates me and challenges me each and every day towards Christ-likeness. I fervently believe that we need more Christ followers in this world that will take hold of a biblical view of heaven and spend their lives not trying to get to heaven, but getting more of heaven into the kingdoms of this earth. May you find yourself compelled by the already, not yet, kingdom of God. And may you be empowered to be agents of heaven to focus less on getting into heaven and more on getting more of heaven here on earth. And may we, the church of Jesus Christ, be glimpses of heaven to the kingdoms of this world. We're going to close this morning by singing a song of our heavenly hope. I'll invite the band to come forward. It might feel a little bit odd uh, to sing this song based on what we've just spent the last 25 minutes talking about singing about a promised land that is to come when we're trying to say that the kingdom of heaven is here and now. You might be tempted uh, to to pick up the blue hymnal in front of you and and black out the fourth verse of almost every hymn because almost every hymn that we have and most of the worship songs we sing, the, the, the last verse is about a heavenly hope that we have. Please don't deface our hymnals, by the way, though I planted that idea in your brain. I want you to resist the urge of seeing this as a contradiction because The reality is we can sing these songs of our heavenly hope, our promised land, not as those who are waiting for a future promise that we get to evacuate to someday, but rather as those who realize 
that the promised land has come in the person of Jesus Christ. We realize that the eternity that we look forward to begins now. As John Ortberg says, eternity is now in session.